Welcome to Catherine Flynn's podcast, Intelligent Edge Yoga, conversations for smart, compassionate practice. Each episode will guide and inquire into ethics-based spirituality within a modern paradigm of practice. Whether your practice is yoga, Ayurveda, meditation, or simply living a life full of intention, this is for you. I'd like you to take a moment to consider supporting this podcast through Patreon. Your pledges enable the continuation of the podcast. Patrons will also receive exclusive resources, uh, behind-the-scenes material for instructors, guided yoga and meditation sessions for yogis, and everything in between. This is just the start of something new and exciting. You can be a part of it by going to patreon.com slash yoga and clicking on the large orange button. Thanks. Welcome to Intelligent Edge Yoga, yoga conversations for smart, compassionate practice with Catherine Ann Flynn. I'm Catherine. Hello, yogis. If you're ever listening and you're way in the future and you think that it would have been nice to register for that thing that Catherine listed years ago, you can always find what's on my calendar, where I'm going, and who I'm getting up to some wonderful experiences with at www.intelligentedge.yoga. And that's where you'll find information on my queuing mantra and chant weekend that my friend Megan Marie Gates is joining me for, as well as my accessible yoga teacher training starting November 7th. There's still five spots left in the November 17th short silent retreat. It's just two nights in Arnprior, Ontario. That's all uh, for the news. I'm very excited about this particular conversation. You will hear the enthusiasm in my voice in our conversation. My guest in this podcast is David R. Loy. David is a professor, writer, and Zen teacher in the Sanbo Zen tradition of Japanese Zen Buddhism. He is a prolific author, and we're speaking today primarily about his most recent book, Ecodharma, Buddhist Teachings for the Precipice. However, he's written many things, including his dissertation, which was printed by Yale University Press as Non-Duality, a Study in Comparative Philosophy. He lectures nationally and internationally on various topics, primarily focusing on the encounter between Buddhism and modernity and what they can learn from each other. He is a professor of Buddhist and comparative philosophy with a BA from Carleton College in Northfield, Minnesota, and he studied analytical philosophy at King's College, University of London. His MA is from the University of Hawaii in Honolulu, and his PhD is from the National University of Singapore. His teaching experience at various universities is a very long list, as well as his, uh, his teaching within the Buddhist communities. And he's more recently one of the founding members of the new Rocky Mountain Ecodharma Retreat Center near Boulder, Colorado. We talk about this information at the end of the conversation, but you can find out more about David and his work, including lots of worthwhile resources at www.davidloy.org. I won't postpone any further. This is such a necessary conversation for the challenges that we face in our practice and globally in our lives. Enjoy as much as I did. Good afternoon, David. Good afternoon, Catherine. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Good. Thank you. How's your day so far? 
Pretty good, thank you. Yeah, looking forward to this conversation. Ditto. Thank you so, so much for um, for accepting my correspondence and being so willing. No problem at all. No, this is the kind of thing I'm interested in and I enjoy talking about. So uh, very happy to join you for that. Excellent. It will be... So it's it's a it's a bit of a new branch for this particular podcast, and so that's why the the first question um, I, I'm going to ask that you offer perhaps a little bit more detail than you might to one of your communities if you're answering this question because there will okay. be lots of people listening who have very uh, cursory knowledge of Buddhism. And so if you can uh, offer a little bit of etymological context, that would be so appreciated. Go for it. Okay. Okay. So, you know, today, as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, we're talking specifically about your recent book, Ecodharma. And I'm, so I'm not sure if you've used this term before, but I really enjoyed your use of the word, uh, the reimagining of the word Buddhism as wake upism. And I was hoping you could explain that for us. Sure, sure. Actually, uh, uh, translating um, Buddhism as wake upism is really a, a return to its original meaning. Uh, the word Buddha literally means the awakened one, or you could even leave off the uh, the one there. Uh, the Buddha is is the awakened. What's happened in in English is somehow we've become more familiar with the term enlightened or enlightenment. But literally, Buddhism is very much about awakening, awakening to realize the true nature of reality. So the basic idea is that our normal way of experiencing the world is in fact uh, not a real experience of the world. We're we're filtering it, we're we're seeing it through a web of our desires, uh, expectations, concepts, all of which sort of organizes the world. It's it's really a kind of psychological and social construct that we grow up and grow into. But in fact, the Buddhist path is really about seeing through that and therefore seeing things as they really are, including ourselves understanding, experiencing ourselves as we really are. And one very important aspect of that is realizing our non-separation, our, our non-duality with other people and the rest of the world. Um, as Thich Nhat Hanh put it, uh, we are here to you know, see through the illusion of our separation. And in fact, that is probably our most fundamental illusion or delusion, the idea that there's a me inside, maybe behind the eyes or somewhere inside the ears looking out at a world outside that's somehow separate from me. And so seeing through that delusion is, is essential. And of course, that's not only in Buddhism, you know, thinking of a Neo-Vedantan figure like Nisargadatta. Actually, I think he put it better than anybody when he said, uh, when I look inside and see that I am nothing, that's wisdom. When I look outside and see that I am everything, that's love. Between these two, my life flows. So Buddhism is, is wake-upism in the sense that by following you know, certain practices, we can let go of these delusions. We can let go and forget ourselves, as the great Zen master uh, 
Dogen put it, and and realize the true nature of things. Uh, and until then, there's a sense in which we're we're sleeping, we're dreaming, we're we're thinking we experience the world, but in fact we're sort of caught up in a kind of collective dream. Now, does that help? That helps a lot. And I, I would love to ask, what era is uh, the teacher Nizar Gadatta that you that you quoted? What era is he from? Uh, he's actually quite recent. Uh, he's a Neo-Vedantin, so it would be Advaita. And I think he was after Ramana Maharshi. So he probably only died maybe 15, 20 years ago, something like that. He's quite modern. Because, and, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, in your book, you you introduced me to a phrase I hadn't read before, which is uh, axial age religions or mm. or um, philosophies. Right. And uh, and so you know you were listing them: um, Islam, Christianity, uh, Buddhism, Jainism, and uh, and it occurred to me that we haven't really come up with too many religions since then. Not at least not not globally successful ones. And it had me thinking that maybe pretty early on we got to the we got to the truth of the matter. So we didn't need too much new creation around uh, the capital T truth. It's just the the content that we struggle with changes from era to era. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, going back to the axial age, uh, I. I I would say that I think that that is the most important sort of transformation in in not only religion, but you could say our consciousness generally. It's, it's like when you look way back in human history, agriculture was sort of the, the biggest shift. But in terms of our, our consciousness, I think the axial age was was essential. You know, prior to that, religions tended to be what can we say, tribal, very much um, associated with uh, sort of social hierarchies. If you look at something like Mesopotamia or Egypt or even the pre-Columbian American civilizations, the Incas, Aztecs, Mayas, uh, for all of those, their understanding of religion wasn't really separate from their understanding of the um, social order of, of what we would call the secular. It's like the the person at the top of the social pyramid was not only a, a, a ruler of this world, but they were also gods or godlike. They had a special role to play in sort of communicating with the uh, higher powers. And, and that meant that in a way, we were sort of trapped within a certain kind of way of thinking that that involved that that involved sort of identifying playing a role within those kind of civilizations and then suddenly you come across these incredible axial age figures and i'll just pick out two of them uh, the buddha and and jesus and, and it's a really totally new kind of spiritual consciousness where um it's interesting that usually they they have some experience because they go out to the natural world by themselves and they somehow manage to free themselves from their identification with the the, the hierarchical and usually exploitive social system. And, and they come back with this new message. And it's not a message of our civilization against yours, our gods against yours. It's a it's a message of of universal compassion and and uh, really creating the individual as somebody who is not completely identified with that kind of tribalism. So, 
Jesus, the Buddha are pretty good examples, but uh, what's really amazing about the Axial Age is that it seems to have uh, occurred so many different places around the world at roughly the same time. So in India, for sure, you have the Buddha, Jainism, uh, uh, some of the later Upanishads in um in China, you get uh, Confucianism, Taoism. Uh, in uh, in Greece, you, th- you get the beginning of uh, sort of Greek philosophy, and then you get the uh, the, the prophets of uh, of the Old Testament leading up to Jesus. It, it's quite an amazing period in human history that I think really hasn't been studied or really hasn't been acknowledged enough. But in a way, we're we're still sort of digesting those truths, like like you were pointing to. In a way, the Axial Age failed in the sense that their, the teachings of these great figures were pretty soon appropriated by empires like the Roman Empire or the Ashokan Empire um, and sort of became re-tribalized and, and so forth. And so I, I think still the greatest challenge we face today is uh, living up really incorporating both individually and, and collectively the this new way of living that these teachers offered us. So you've, you've mentioned, you know, multiple schools of, of different, uh, different philosophies. Uh, but I want to zoom in on Buddhism for a moment. And this and I'll, I'll be honest, this, this question comes from a, a place of uh, personal curiosity, and and a little anxiety about wanting to get things right a, a, deep, mm-hmm. a deep desire to uh to be respectful and and to understand as much as i can so <laughs> you're a zen practitioner by background uh but you write in ecodharma about the concepts that are valuable to it from both uh theravada and mahayana lineage and so I wanted to know your particular perspective on, you know, what are what are the what are the valuable aspects of hearing to lineage, or are we moving post lineage? Uh, I would say both, actually. Uh, I think we are inevitably post lineage in in a way that wasn't a possibility for people living a couple hundred years ago. You know, mm-hmm. if you think about someone growing up in a Thai village you grew up as a Buddhist in the same way that you would have grown up Christian in medieval Europe. Um, that was simply the world that you were uh, socialized into. But now living in the modern, now globalized world where we know so much more uh, about other traditions. I mean, for example, to to be a Buddhist, say, in the United States, I think it's very difficult not to be aware of other traditions, not not to learn a lot about them. So in a way, there's this sort of creative ferment of of interaction going on between the different Buddhist traditions. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, how much these lineages remain separate in the long run and how much they're they're already leading to sort of sort of inter in, interactive things going on. I find it curious, for example, say Spirit Rock Vipassana Insight students out in uh, California, you know, they're also sometimes inviting um Vajrayana Tibetan teachers to come as well. I, I think this is a real fertilization, a very exciting process going on. Nonetheless, you know, getting back to what you said about the value of adhering to a lineage, I think that um, it's really important for us 
in our in our practice to find the particular practices the particular lineage the particular teachers that work for us i mean at this point uh, we still do have to make some really important changes and uh, uh, by changes i mean commitments uh, as somebody said you don't strike water by starting to dig new holes all the time hmm. but at the beginning i think it's really valuable to sort of you know check around see a number of different teachers their styles their traditions and then decide which one works better for you even though you know acknowledging that in a way no no tradition is an island anymore uh, they're all sort of in in engaged in this sort of long-term conversation with each other and i think that's really wonderful in, in, in fact, I would extend that. I think it's not simply a matter that different Buddhist traditions are inevitably interacting, but I think that's true in a larger scale. Um, mm. my, my first book was on non-duality. It was a pretty academic book uh, exploring the concept of non-duality, especially subject-object non-duality. And it spoke, it talked in detail not only about Buddhism, but Advaita Vedanta, Taoism, uh, some uh, Christian thinkers like, uh, say, William Blake, Meister Eckhart, The Cloud of Unknowing. Part of the really exciting aspect of sort of globalism and modernization and the fact that we know so much about all of these other traditions is we can engage in this process of, uh, you know, conversation and, and trying to sort out, you know, what is it that's really living in these traditions that still is very relevant to us, and what is it that's culturally and historically conditioned and therefore can be let go of because it's really not so relevant for the sort of situation that we find ourselves in today. Yes. I, uh, an image that comes to mind that has been meaningful to me lately is rethinking lineage uh, rather than the tree that often, and not to, I know trees are extremely important and, and that they're a very <laughs> valuable metaphor and place to spend time. Mm, but mm. we often think of lineage and intellectual and spiritual inheritance as a tree, that there's this sort of uh, very definable path from, from root uh, through trunk to branch to leaf. But I was thinking about my son loves blowing uh, dandelions. He loves blowing dandelion seeds. And so we were doing that one day and I was watching them float along. And I thought, to me, that's that's more uh, an apt metaphor because mm -hmm. the, the seed carries uh, obviously the imprint of the plant that it came from, but where it lands will dictate how it grows. Mm -hmm. mm, I like that. and And... There, there's another side to that metaphor as well. You know, we, we look at trees above ground and we tend to see them as separate and, and maybe even competing for sort of certain resources. Uh, but it's interesting, some of the new books by botanists are talking about how, in fact, when you look at the root systems, uh, trees, in, including trees of different species, are not only sort of aware of each other, communicating with each other, but often sharing resources. It, it, it's quite amazing that, um, that 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 sort of thing goes on. I mean, here, well, one great example, of course, and, and I'm speaking to you from Boulder, Colorado, where uh, the, um, the mountains are full of aspen, which will be beautiful and golden in another month or so. Um, but 
it's interesting that aspen trees are in fact connected in the sense that they that they that they have the same root system mm. uh, it, it's not as though their root systems are somehow in communication it's actually the same root system similar i think to sort of bamboo so it just reminds us that well in fact this this points to something else i think very important how by sort of fixating on traditions, uh, I think we often miss the fact that there's something going on that's maybe not so formalized, where the, the traditions are, in fact, um, influencing each other all the time. Let me give you an example. Um, within the Advaita Vedanta world and the Buddhist world, there, there's a great deal of concern to sort of distinguish them from each other. Neither one normally wants to be contaminated by the other. They're sort of preoccupied by that. But when you actually get behind that and look at some of the the teachings uh, and how they have influenced each other, for example, how Shankara, the great, the most important figure in the Advaita tradition, was influenced by the great Buddhist philosopher Nagarjuna through his teacher Gaudapada. There's all this kind of inter-fertilization going on all the time and when we get too hung up in lineage or a particular tradition, it's like seeing the trees as separate from each other and realizing the fact that uh, this kind of interpenetration is, is, is happening all the time. Yes. I loved what you had to say on uh, the Embodied Philosophy podcast to Jacob, where you said, you know, whether it expands to include everything or shrinks mm. to include nothing, the outcome is the same. Mm, the same non-duality. That's yeah. right. It, it overcomes the duality of you know self and other. Yes. Yeah. Yep. So continuing this thread of uh, of delusion and and which ties into fantasy, in the introduction to ecodharma, you write that while scientists may differ in their predictions on climate change's impacts, what is a fantasy is the widespread belief that the kind of industrial growth economy still promoted by the government and uh, our government as well. We kicked off an election today and they're still trying to say we can meet Paris agreements, but also build pipelines. Um, <laughs> You know, every of every overdeveloped nation can continue indefinitely without wrecking the biosphere. And so there's reasonable cause to be fearful of the impact of climate change and to be angry at parties that deny its existence or are, you know, disinterested in meaningful action. And so I want to ask you, um, as a teacher, you know, what's the place for these really big emotions of, of fear and anger, uh, specifically where climate action is needed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, well, let, let me begin by backing up a little bit, because to be quite frank, I, I feel a little uncomfortable by the term climate change um, mm. for a couple of reasons. First of all, that was originally introduced, you know, several decades ago as a kind of a non threatening sort of euphemism mm -hmm. um, uh, and and likewise I think um, global warming can seem rather too cozy whereas I, I think something like uh, uh, global heating is 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 a better term and of course what we really need is something like climate emergency um, mm -hmm. but but my my main point there is actually somewhat somewhat different in the sense that I, I think it's important for us to realize that urgent as 
uh, the climate emergency is, it's really just the tip of the iceberg of a much larger ecological crisis or ecological breakdown. I mean, we can somehow get preoccupied with thinking that if we can just sort of, what is it, transform from fossil fuels to renewable sources of energy quickly enough, then sort of everything else can go on much the way, same way that it has been, our economic, social system. And I think that's why it's really important to, to emphasize that the ecological crisis is is much greater than that. And what we're doing to the climate is just one manifestation of it. So the other ones that I would I add, most obviously, the uh, the sixth great extinction event, mm-hmm. that uh, species are going extinct at rates somewhere between 100 and 1,000 or even 10,000 times faster than uh, would have happened without our interference. And, of course, some of that is to do with climate. A lot of it is to do with uh, habitat destruction. Uh, a lot of it has to do also with uh, various types of pollution, you know. I mean, it's fascinating when I was born, revealing my age now in the late 40s, I mean, commercial plastic really hadn't taken off yet. And yet within one lifetime, you know, we've created so much plastic that we really don't know what to do with. It's gotten everywhere and and it's polluting. It's, it's killing, it's breaking down, it's getting into our bodies in ways that we... And, and having effects, you know, we don't know what they are. It, I mean, there's just so many things one can point to. For example, the fact that in the last hundred years, about half of all agricultural topsoil has been washed away or otherwise depleted. Or, or think of all the toxins in our bodies, uh, in the air, in the soil, in the waters. I mean, it's just truly an amazing c- catastrophe which has largely happened within the, lar- the last hundred years. Some of it is due to our incredible technologies. A lot of it is due to our exploding population. You know, the fact that the world population of humans is like three and a half times what it was when I was born. I mean, that that's just flabbergasting to me. So when you put all that together in terms of consumption levels, population, pollution, I mean, we have a much greater crisis, which I argue in the book is not just... Uh, a technological challenge or an economic or a political, it's really a spiritual challenge in the sense that it really forces us to ask very deep questions about the meaning of our civilization and, and, and where it is that we're going. And uh, it seems to me we're, we're starting to do that a little bit, but, uh, you know, times are late and uh, we, we also have to act. You're very calm about this. <laughs> I can feel my anxiety rising as we're chatting. So, so let's let's talk about practice a little bit, uh, because you know you can I you, you, just for a second. Of course. Excuse me, Catherine. I realize I never answered your question in the sense of anger, yeah. or, or fear. <laughs> Sorry about that. That's okay. It was. It was. It was yeah. excellent clarification. <laughs> well, you know, even within the Buddhist tradition, there there's an interesting tension between certain traditions where there's emphasis, sort of, on on keeping the mind what you might call empty or focused or peaceful, and not letting any sort of thought or emotion get in the way. Mm-hmm. But there are also 
understandings where it, it it's not a matter of of that kind of dualism of sort of pushing away affect and and thinking but rather the path is really about not becoming so attached to it in other words there's there's a role for fear um as people say, you know, courage isn't about absence of fear. It's about not being determined by it, not being stopped by it. And the same thing with anger. It's like the the problem with anger is that it usually leads to some kind of knee-jerk uh, reactive action, uh, whereas fundamentally, you know, anger is, is a kind of energy. And as the tantric traditions emphasize it, you know, you, if you can harness that energy, if you can use that energy, then then um, it can be very powerful. But the problem is, of course, it's usually it, it gets distorted by our egos, by our self-righteousness, by our fear. And, and we we get used by the anger rather than being able to use it, being able to harness it. So I think there's a, a role for both fear and anger, but in a way, what can we say, transmuted or, or it, in the sense that we're not completely determined by them, but we find that they are something helpful. I mean, fear, you know, if you look in terms of evolutionary psychology, fear was really, really important for our survival, uh, right? If you didn't have fear, uh, you probably weren't going to survive very long. And, and I, I think it's still true today. I think fear and anger have a role. The problem is when they are sort of experienced and uh, subordinated to a lot of ego, then, and then problems result. Does, does that make any sense? It does. And, and I have a couple of uh, further questions percolating, but one of them involves the, the difficult emotions question. And, mm. and the difficult emotion that came up um, uh, in my thought was guilt. Mm-hmm. And so when I've thought and spoken about guilt in my communities, I've talked about the difference between guilt and remorse, because mm-hmm. it's not that our actions don't have negative consequences. Uh, but my interpretation has always been that that guilt uh, is not uh, an appropriate harnessing of that energy, whereas remorse reorients us toward right action. And I mm-hmm. wanted to know if you had anything specifically to say or or anything um, textually that comes to mind? Mm-hmm. Well, textually, no. Uh, but but in terms of the, the kind of thing that I talk about and write about, um, I mean, well, two things. I mean, we are to a large extent, um, you know, products of a certain kind of evolutionary process. And you add to that the kind of social conditioning that that has gone on top of that. So, you know, that has made us self-preoccupied in certain ways and, and necessarily to some extent. So uh, going along with with what you were saying, uh, it's easy to look at ourselves and feel really bad about ourselves. Um, uh, but I think what we need to do is acknowledge how much that, you know, we we are we have been sort of determined both genetically and culturally in terms of our uh, what we've been doing, our desires and our relationships with others. And the important thing about spiritual paths, such as yoga and Buddhism, of course, is that 
that gives us the opportunity to develop some freedom around them so that we're not identified, so that we're not determined or reactive in in the same kind of way. Um, when I talk about uh, guilt or remorse, actually I rarely do, I talk more about what I call our sense of lack. Um, it, it seems to me that one way to understand what Buddhism, for example, is talking about, about dukkha, about suffering, and Buddhism connects it with this strange teaching about non-self. Non I mean, one way to understand that is, you know, the 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 sense of separate self that I, as I was talking about it earlier, that it's a psychological social construct. And because it doesn't have any sort of real separate reality of its own, I think uh, the way I think that that implies it's it's inherently this this sense of self that we all take for granted from a Buddhist perspective. It's inherently uncomfortable. Uh, it's inherently anxious. It's inherently insecure because there's nothing there that could be secured. Uh, and, and the reason I mention that is I think we tend to experience that as, as a sense of lack, which is something that we all have, I think. Uh, by lack, I mean the sense that something is wrong with me, some, something, is, so, something is missing, something isn't quite right, or I'm not good enough. And of course, that can easily be funneled into, into things like guilt. That's one of the main ways that, that we can do that. Uh, but it's important to realize that that, that that sense of lack, we usually misunderstand it. We usually project it outward and we think that what we lack is something out here in the world. We don't have enough money or we're not famous enough or we don't have a partner or our partner isn't good enough, whatever, our consumer toys and so forth, or we don't have enough power. But we always tend to look outside and think, if I just had enough of this or that, then everything would be okay. And the point of Buddhist teaching certainly is that it's not so simple, that it's the nature of our unawakened minds to be bothered by something. And it's important to see how that process works. And then the path, the spiritual path, is letting go of the sense of lack by letting go of the sense of separate self. Uh, they sort of come together as a package. The, the sense of lack is the... Um, is what shadows or haunts the uh, deluded sense of a separate self. And if we can see through that, or if our practice can help us let go of the um, deluded sense of separate self, then we can get beyond the sense of lack, including feelings of, of guilt. And and what that leads to, I think, is is a sense of not reactivity, but responsibility, in that we can sort of, you know, look at ourselves, look at the situation and ask ourselves what it is that we can do in, in response to what has become a very urgent and dangerous situation, of course. Sorry, that, that that's another long answer to your point. I hope it was close enough to what you were uh, asking about. It was, and it, you know, and I think you can probably just build upon it uh, to respond to the next question, because I, I think it builds on a theme, which is you write about how people misinterpret detachment from the outcome from their actions with being casual, like, oh, well, you know, I tried shrug. Um, so mm -hmm. how do we proceed? Because this is all, you know, speaking of duality, it's it's. Mm these really big emotions and casual being sort of the the opposite of big emotion uh, mm. how do we proceed if we're to be unattached to the outcome because 
you know, don't we want to give up the plastic and save the world? <laughs> well, there's a lot built into those questions. Um, the, the first thing I'd say is uh, I think it's really essential for all of us to sort of get in touch with the grief that we are feeling. I mean, those of us who are sort of paying attention to what's actually going on, I think in, in order to cope on a day-to-day -day level, we tend to get involved in a kind of cognitive dissonance, you know, where on the one hand, we can see how ominous, how dangerous our situation is now, not only ecologically, but, you know, politically and so forth. But, you know, because we feel overwhelmed, because we don't know what difference we can make, we tend to push it off and then do what everyone else does, which is sort of pretend that the world that we've been living in, you know, since we grew up pretty much, uh, is going to continue pretty much the way it has. And we can think about our kids and our grandkids' uh, college education and the kind of job that they're going to get, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and I think that kind of dissonance is, is something we have to really work through. We have to find ways to sort of get in touch with our grief and, and feel the grief. And, and, and it's something bodily. That's why I think yoga is, is very relevant here. As somebody who's sort of tried to teach ecodharma and help people do that, it, it's really fascinating how, how much we immediately consciously and unconsciously tend to run away from feeling that grief. Because it's so uncomfortable, we run away into anger, or we run away into uh, oh, what do we have to do? You know, what can we do right now? Or very often the kind of duality of hope and despair. Um, whereas, um, you know, and I think this whole hope and despair thing is very important because again, all of those involve sort of immediately jumping away from the grief that we feel right here and now in our bodies when we stay present with them, to some sort of future desire, future expectations, future fears. But it's it's ultimately, uh, I think, a way of, of running away. G getting back to what you're saying about what we do do, what, you know, um, and the importance of non-attachment, I, I see this very much at the heart of what Buddhism talks about as the bodhisattva path or, you know, what, what some of us are talking about now as the... Um, Eco-sattva eco path. Mm -hmm. um, and, and in fact, I wonder if that's the most important thing that Buddhism may have to offer right now. The idea that, yeah, I mean, it, it's not just in Buddhism, is it? If you think about the Bhagavad Gita, the whole idea of karma yoga. Yes. I mean, the Gita has different yogas, right? Different paths. Mm -hmm. So you bhakti yoga, kind of purification of the emotions. You've got the yana yoga, you know, more the meditation, the mind, but there's also karma yogi, that it, karma yoga, that is to say, you know, those who work, work again without attachment to the results. And and this is very strong in, in Buddhism, uh, in a number of different texts, this is this is talked about. Um, and, but as you said, it, it can easily be misunderstood in terms of implying a sort of a, a casual, um, response and and I think it's really important to to get clear about that uh, in the book in the ecodharma book I, I talk about this a bit um, but I think what it really comes down to is something like this that um, acknowledging the mystery of the world by which I mean that 
you know, on this path, it's not as though in Buddhism, for example, you have some sort of awakening moment and then everything sort of becomes clear, right? Now I understand how the world is, etc. Yeah. You become on. human Google. <laughs> so, so, so. And it's not that, right? It's, it's, it's actually just the opposite. It's, it's what we call in Zen, don't know mind. It's opening up to an incredible world that's incredibly mysterious. We don't really know what's going on. We don't really understand fully. And yet, we do gain this sense of deep, intimate relationship with it, that we're not separate from it, and also the sense of responsibility that comes from realizing that, you know, the well-being of other people and the well-being of the world in general is not separate from our own. So that's huge, right? So one of my uh, Zen teachers, Robert Aiken, put it very well when he said that our path isn't about clearing up the mystery, but making the mystery clear. So, so what does that mean then in, in terms of, you know, how we act? Well, the truth is we don't know what's coming down. Certain things look very bad, especially ecologically. But nonetheless, what, what we do feel, and this is certainly emphasized in, in Buddhism, is, is responding appropriately according to the best of what we do know. And what, it, what that means in effect is something like this. Um, doing the very best we can, not casually at all, doing the very best we can, but not knowing if it makes any difference whatsoever. And that's okay. That's our job. That's our task. That's what the earth, I think, is calling upon all of us to, to do. You know, we don't know how it's going to play out. We don't know if what we do is important, but it is important for us to do it. Uh, and so I think that's the real meaning of action uh, without attachment to results, that it it doesn't mean we don't w hope that things will you know turn out in a certain kind of a way, but when they often don't, you know it's not as though we we get uh, discouraged or discouraged for very long. The whole point of the Bodhisattva path is one's own individual path of personal transformation, med such as meditation, it, it, it puts us in touch with that place where we can, you know, let go of disappointment, let go of frustration, and sort of bounce back, you know, doing the best we can. It's very interesting in, uh, in the Zen world, um, in, in the Zen um, centers where I've lived and practiced, uh, every day we would recite the four vows or the bodhisattva vows and the first vow is something like living beings are numberless i vow to save them all whoa you know we're we're basically doing something really weird there we're vowing to accomplish something that cannot possibly be accomplished regardless of how you understand you know saving sentient beings and and what that really points to is that the bodhisattva path isn't about achieving something it's more about transforming oneself, transforming the meaning of one's life away from what is it, what's in it for me to, okay, given that I'm not separate from this world, I'm not separate from this situation, what can I do to make it better? And obviously there's always going to be lots of setbacks and failures and that's okay. We just pick ourselves up and we keep doing, keep doing it because that becomes the meaning of our lives. 
You mentioned this a couple of times in the book uh, that there, you know, there was no discourse on the oil sands. The, the Buddha lived at a time uh, <laughs> with different challenges than the right. challenges of the modern era. And so we, we can't look to his teachings for specific advice. And this yeah. inspired two questions. The first being, uh, what is one of your favorite teachings that you see as especially meaningful to eco-dharma or the eco-sattva path? Um, mm, yes. Well, I've just given you one of them, right? The mm -hmm. whole idea of, of the bodhisattva uh, as non-attached to the results. Um, I think that's really, really important given that there's inevitably going to be a lot of discouragement along the way. But... But the thing that maybe stands out for me most of all is this fascinating parallel between what I think Buddhism is really saying about our individual predicament and our collective predicament today. Uh, what I mean by that is it's almost like it's, it's, it's the same teaching in two different forms, microcosm and macrocosm. Um, because as I already said, I think at the heart of the Buddhist teaching is uh, a practice that helps us let go of the delusion of separation, the idea that somehow I'm inside and you and others are outside. And I spoke about because this is a delusion, the sense of self is inherently, uh, it's a construct that's haunted by this sense of lack, which we usually misunderstand. We think that what we lack is something outside ourselves. And what's fascinating is doesn't this seem to explain the larger ecological situation we're in now, that we have the sense of separation from the earth, you know, the way human civilization has developed. Uh, and, you know, you can trace it back to a number of things, the agricultural revolution, Genesis, where God sort of gives us the other creatures or, or, or the Greek distinction between uh, sort of human culture and nature, where we felt that you know, our own societies are really separate from what's going on in the natural world. It's that it seems to be the same delusion of separation. And as a result, of course, collectively, we we treat the earth as a big collection of resources to be exploited and as a sink to dump all of our junk and rubbish into. Right. And and, you know, fundamentally, I think the ecological crisis comes back to that, that we feel that our own well-being is is separate from the well-being of the earth, whereas in reality, of course, we are one manifestation of it. We are one of the ways that, that the, hmm, you could even think about it as a kind of experiment. We're one of the ways that the earth is experimenting with creating different types of, of beings, different species. And uh, the, the reason the ecological crisis is a spiritual crisis is because I think it calls upon us ultimately to sort of see through that that delusion or or destroy ourselves it, it's almost like the earth is telling us um you know wake up or get out of the way mm -hmm. yes yeah. Yeah. i also study ayurveda yoga's uh lifestyle science and you know ayurveda's main thrust is that uh you are a part of nature so if you observe nature you will know how to respond uh, to the challenges of your embodiment, uh, because the answers are all there. And, and so your response reminds me of, uh, of what you say in the book, Ecodharma about the importance of practicing in nature. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So that, go sorry, ahead. that's actually something else that I would emphasize if we had more time. How, yes, I know. <laughs> you know be, being out in the natural world can be really transformative as far as helping us see through that you know, socially constructed sense of self. If we can open up to what the natural world is, 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 is telling us, is showing us, that, that can be very powerful. And I think it's no accident that, you know, the Buddha went out by himself and was meditating by himself under that Bodhi tree, or that Jesus, after his baptism, you know, went out in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights by himself, or, or that Muhammad went up to his cave, you know, uh, it's it's it, there's definitely something important there as far as getting in touch with something that we tend to sort of overlook all the time when we're in our usual urban and and social settings. Mm-hmm. And that's to circle back to that anxiety I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation. Usually, when I when those feelings of anxiety start to rise, I realize that there has been perhaps too much busyness and too much study and not enough practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I mentioned sounds- that I had two questions about um, the difference between when the Buddha was teaching and the specific challenges of the modern era. And and that's the word that I wanted to zoom in on, because when I mentioned uh, to my network that I was going to have this conversation and did anyone have any questions, the qu- some of the questions that came were extremely specific. And, you know, I knew that I wanted to have a more philosophical conversation with you, but around specific suggestions of action, people can get a little defensive uh, Mm. and we differ in our ideas about what meaningful and right action are. And so I was curious, how specific do you get in your, in your suggestions and your teaching, or do you leave that up to people to interpret? Um, well, in a way, I, I follow the, the Buddhist tradition in this way. You know, we, we've talked a bit about the bodhisattva or ecosattva path. You know, what that really involves is, is that Buddhism doesn't really tell us what to do. Um, and, and when you think about the ecological crisis, that wasn't something that the Buddha or the other pre-modern Asian Buddhist traditions had to deal with. But, but the point of the Bodhisattva path is more about how to do whatever it is that we think, you know, is, is important for us to do. So, you know, different different people are going to feel called upon to do for different things. Um, for example, I have a, a friend. He's actually another Zen teacher who works with uh, a Citizens Climate Lobby working f- toward a carbon tax. Uh, that's given his background. Uh, I think that's a very skillful use of his um uh, training as, as as a banker in a previous lifetime. Uh, in in my case, um, may, maybe because of my own background as a draft resistor back in the late 60s, early 70s, um, I feel more drawn to Extinction Rebellion, and and I've you know am am a member of several local groups here in the Front Range area of 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 Colorado. That is to say, groups that are you know, feeling that uh, our our backs are against the wall and uh, business as usual is just leading to disaster. And so we have to do what we can. Now, I don't think that Buddhist teachings uh, of the Buddha or other Buddhist traditions, I don't think it gives us a lot of help 
when it comes to specifics of what it is we should be doing, whether Grant's right or I'm right or, you know, there's a variety of other things. I think it's more about, you know, how how to do the sort of frame of mind within which we do what we do. Um, so I guess that means the short answer to your question is I, I don't tend to be very specific in terms of telling people, you know, what they should do. It's more a matter for me of helping them overcome, you know, the the sense of separation, often the sense of paralysis that comes when we don't deal with our grief, and sort of, you know, getting in touch with something deeper that pulls us in 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 to respond, and a variety of, of possibilities uh, arise there, you know, rather than one size fits all. Does that make any sense? Does that help? It does. It does. Uh, although I have to tell you that they, they did quite, get quite specific. There were questions <laughs> about both vegetarianism and geoengineering. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I have an opinion about geoengineering just because uh, it, it just seems to be, I mean, what, what they've been able to work out so far just seems to be quite dangerous. And because mm. we're just not clear about all the unintended consequences. Um, uh, but but the other side of it goes back to what I said earlier, that um, the idea of a high-tech solution to a problem that was created by our high-tech in the first place makes me uncomfortable in the sense that, you know, we, we seem to think uh, there's, there's a technological solution to any problem we might create, rather than seeing the essential point that there's something wrong with our relationship you know, both individually and collectively with with the Mother Earth, mm-hmm. you know, which which isn't just a place where we happen to live. It's our mother. Right. And, you know, really, we we never really cut the umbilical cord. If you think about our need to breathe and drink water and eat food and all such. I mean, we're part of the Earth. We're not we're we're not just a species that lives on 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 top of it. So that's my discomfort with geoengineering regarding vegetarianism also it's interesting you know the buddha as far as we can tell from the text and there are people who will deny this but the texts are pretty clear the buddha wasn't a vegetarian himself in the sense that you know he he told the people in his sangha you know uh, they could eat a bit of meat unless they knew or suspected that it was killed for them I mean, they were beggars. They Mm -hmm. went around, had these begging bowls. They didn't have much choice. They had to eat what they were given. It's interesting that vegetarianism became very important in China, in East Asia. That that was uh, a very interesting development. And I think today, of course, we know so much about, you know, the ecological imprint of our preoccupation with meat and such and and other, you know, dairy and so forth. I think there's a very strong argument to be made for vegetarianism and even veganism. However, again, that's not something that I would uh, sort of put on um, put on my students. It's like the, the there there has to be our own realization about the situation and and our own decisions. And um, so, you know, within Buddhism in general. Uh, Within the East Asian Buddhist traditions, this veg, uh, vegetarianism is sort of taken for granted. But uh, in, in a lot of the other ones, um, 
you know there there's not that there's not that kind of emphasis you know yeah, I know we don't. Ha- I know we are wrapping up in a moment, but uh, I find that so interesting that uh, uh, he made the stipulation: if you know it was uh, prepared for you, killed for you, because mm. it reminds me of uh, the interconnectedness between um, consumerism and and its its damage to the planet and how. Mm-hmm. Uh, we live in a world built on preference, built on for us. Right. Uh, you know, we've never, those of us uh, with privilege and, and movement ability and, and money, uh, you know, what would you like? You can have it right now or in two days when Amazon can deliver it. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I mean, just thinking about supermarkets. Okay. So I go to a supermarket maybe and there's a nice chicken and a, it's just been roasted. Maybe it smells nice, but, it, you know. How do you apply that? Is it okay? Well, it was already dead. I guess I can eat it and take it home. It's not killed for me. Or you can understand it in the other way that in a way, all of that, all of that meat has been killed for me and for any of us, you know, so it's an interesting question how you want to understand understand that challenge today. How do we and, and maybe it's important not to be purist in the sense that I think we can all acknowledge it's really important to to reduce to sort of move in that direction. But uh, I also know people who are really, uh, I, I think, so preoccupied with that that I think it, it gets in the way of some other things. I mean, this whole question of sort of purity, it's 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 very hard to live in a pure way in such an impure world. And depending on how we understand that, we can sort of become so preoccupied with that, it, it, it sort of can reduce our ability to respond in other ways. Look, next weekend, um, not this one, but the next one, I'm flying to Vancouver. I'm giving a number of talks and workshops there. Oh, cool. Okay, but the reason I mention it is, okay, I'm flying there. I'm yeah. flying back. <laughs> I don't like to think about all the carbon that it's kicking up. At the same time, you know, it's an opportunity to teach and connect and although I more and more prefer to do Skype and Zoom and stuff like that, it's often still very powerful to be doing something in person. So uh, I, I guess what I'm saying, that's how I rationalize my um, my my flights. But, it, mm-hmm. you know, th- there is a trade off there. Yeah. Yes, we can't uh, we can't all Greta Thunberg our way <laughs> to, <laughs> to our conferences. Um so I want to last question for you. You know, you you've written so much and uh, and such meaningful work. That's obviously a testament to your passion uh, for your community and for the teachings. And I wanted to ask, you know, what's what brings you joy? What's the <laughs> what's the spark behind the passion? Yeah, I really appreciate that question because I don't remember any of the other interviews I've done asking me that. Uh, so. Um, I've uh, I've had a chance to think about it, and and I think for me, you know, the most important thing of all is is feeling that that I have a role, that I have a task, that I'm called upon to do something. Uh, I mean, one of the major problems I think for sort of modernity is that you know we we understand ourselves now as sort of the accidental products of sort of genetic mutation, and Insofar as we tend to do that, what's the meaning of our lives? Well, there is no meaning in the sense that we're not connected with anything greater than ourselves. And so 
I think that explains a lot about why it seems to come down to consumerism in the sense that our only task, it seems like all we can do is enjoy ourselves as long as we can, as much as we can, if we can, until we die, which is actually not very joyful when you think about it, right? There's, in the end, there's, there's little more boring than consumerism, I, ultimately. Uh, so... I guess I feel very fortunate that that, uh, that that there's a path for. Are are you familiar with Paul Hawkins' book Blessed Unrest? No. Okay. Anyway, uh, he, the heart of that book is his. He's he's talking about something that's never happened before in human history. That there's a very large number of organizations, mostly very small, that have sort of sprung up spontaneously to work for social justice and sustainability. And, you know, they're, they, they have their own tasks, their own ways of doing things, their own leaders, whatever. It's not part of a communist conspiracy or anything. But one of the things I love about this is that he has a whole chapter comparing this to the immune system. He says, this is the immune system of the earth. Mm. The people doing this, the groups doing this, we're, we're part of the immune system of the earth springing up to defend it. And... I think that, you know, f for those of us engaged in kind of a spiritual path, I, I think that's very true that we are, it, it's not enough to work for our own awakening, that as we get more deeply into that and realize our non-duality, our, our non-separation from, from other people in the earth, then more and more we feel called upon. It's almost as if the earth is is calling upon us to do the very best we can and i think to feel that to feel that one is playing a role i like that well to be quite honest i i can't imagine anything more joyful thank you so much for for feeling that calling because i'm i'm very grateful that you took the time today it's it can be difficult to get a hold of people who are uh, as as well researched and well practiced and with the longevity that you have and and with the excellent stories and shares that you have so thank you so much for making time well thank you catherine for this invitation i i uh i really appreciate it and i've i very much enjoyed the conversation and uh you know m my guess is we're we're doing something very similar in terms of responding as well as we can to the kind of situation we're all facing these days. Now, I'm going to link to where people can find you, but quickly, where can they find you? Well, the best place is my website, www.davidloy.org. So D-A-V-I-D-L-O-Y.org. And, you know, there's there's lots of information there. You can read introductions and summaries of all my books there's articles blogs podcasts there's an email address if somebody wants to contact me so i'd say that's the that's the place to look and that will also point them toward the rocky mountain eco dharma center if they would like to visit you there yes indeed and they can also access that directly uh we have our acronym, right? R M E R C, Rocky Mountain Ecodharma Retreat Center. Dot, is it com or org? I don't remember. But uh, in any case, even Ecodharma, if you do a search for that, that'll find our website. And we also have a Facebook page. And uh, yes, I hope that people can visit because it's a truly incredible place where we are 
talking about and and finding ways to practice some of the things that we've just been talking about. Excellent. I hope to visit you there one day. Please. We're waiting for you. But until then, safe travels and have an excellent afternoon. Okay. Thank you very much again, Catherine, for this opportunity. Bye for now, David. Bye-bye. Another big thank you to David for making the time. He was a pleasure and so easeful to work with. If that matters to you, it certainly matters to me. It was really, it was really a pleasure. You can find out more about him from his website linked in the show notes. And a reminder that if you're interested in practicing with me, you can always find practices online at the Patreon campaign at patreon.com backslash intelligent edge yoga. That's all though. Namaste for now, yogis.